you can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm Dan Pfeiffer. Later in the pod, you'll hear a conversation Tommy and I had last week with Chef Jose Andres. This week marks the one-year anniversary of Hurricane Maria making landfall in Puerto Rico. And Jose's new book, We Fed an Island, is about the relief work he did in the months after the storm, which he's doing again right now in the wake of Hurricane Florence, because Jose is a wonderful person. Uh, we're also going to hear from Cricket contributor Julissa Arce, who last weekend shared a copy of her new book, Someone Like Me, with none other than Steve Bannon. Uh, story we'll hear from Jalissa. Um, she also launched a four-part series on Crooked Conversations this week with Hysteria's Grace Parra called Defining Us, which will explore and celebrate the identity and voting potential of Latinx communities. Also, on this week's Pod Save the World, former Secretary of State John Kerry is recording for duty. Did you like that joke, Dan? That really got a lot of nice. mileage. <laughs> I, was so, I was so impressed with that. <laughs> um... So love its joke. Uh, join Tommy and me to talk about everything from the Iran deal to why Rex Tillerson wasn't allowed to go with him to dinner. Um, finally, we put up a lot of new shit on Vote Save America this week. So go check it out. Make sure you're registered. Make sure everyone you know is registered. Also, an announcement. If you sign up for a shift volunteering for any Democrat running in the Crooked 8 between now and September 23rd, you'll be entered to win two tickets for our live show in Los Angeles on Friday, September 28th. You can check out all the details at votesaveamerica.com slash California. Uh, we want to say hi next Friday. We're going to be doing basically a live dress rehearsal for our HBO show, um, the trailer for which is out today. Uh, that'll be on social media, and then you can, uh, you'll be seeing it on HBO this weekend. So the HBO show is coming, Dan. It's happening. I... Well, two things. One, if a Democratic House is not incentive enough, I guess listening to us talk about politics in person will be incentive enough. Cool cool contest. And second, now that the trailer's out, no take backs, HBO. You are stuck with us There's for at least these four episodes. They're stuck. The trailer's out. It has to happen. I suppose I suppose they could just decide not to do it. <laughs> just have that yeah. trailer out there. We'd have a nice, you know, minute trailer. But um, we'll, we'll always have we'll always have the trailer. We'll, we'll always have that moment. <laughs> You can also watch the HBO trailer on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Crooked Media. Elijah will be very happy if we have more YouTube subscribers, so go check it out. Okay, we have a lot of news. Um, here's where we are in the Kavanaugh nomination. The White House and every single Senate Republican refused to allow an independent investigation into credible allegations that the Supreme Court nominee sexually assaulted Dr. Christine Blasey Ford when the two of them were in high school. They refused to allow the FBI to reopen Kavanaugh's background check. They refused to interview anyone who may have witnessed the assault or attended the party. They refused to interview Dr. Blasey's therapist, whom she told about the assault in 2012. They refused to talk to anyone or do anything but allow Brett Kavanaugh and Dr. Blasey to testify before the Senate Judiciary Committee on Monday, where she would be questioned by Republican senators who have already called her, quote, mistaken 
and, quote, mixed up. In response, Dr. Blasey's lawyers have said that she's willing to cooperate with the committee, but believes that a nonpartisan investigation led by the FBI should be the first step in addressing the allegations and that the rush to a hearing that doesn't allow any other witnesses to testify is unnecessary and contrary to the committee discovering the truth. Dan, I want to start with the request for an FBI investigation. We got some Republicans saying the FBI doesn't do that sort of thing. Some saying that Brett Kavanaugh has already been through multiple FBI background checks for his previous appointments and confirmations. Some are saying that it would take too long. What do you think? Could the FBI conduct a fair, timely investigation that would help resolve these allegations? They certainly can and should conduct a investigation. And we know they can do this because in a very similar situation, during after Anita Hill's allegations against Clarence Thomas, which happened after the original FBI background investigation of Clarence Thomas, the FBI, at the request of then-President George H.W. Bush, reopened the investigation into those allegations. That investigation took a month? No. Three weeks? No. Three days. So it can be done. Will it resolve the question? We don't know, but there's no harm in trying to actually do it. it is, they have the, the FBI has the ability to do it. All it would take is one phone call from Don McGahn to the FBI to ask them to do it. And uh, none other than Senator Orrin Hatch, who said that uh, this isn't the kind of thing the FBI does, said back in 1991 about the FBI investigating Anita Hill's claims, um, this was the very right, appropriate thing to do. That was a quote from Orrin Hatch in 1991. Um, also, uh, just recently, John Yu, a former clerk to Clarence Thomas and general counsel for the Senate Judiciary Committee, said he was, quote, surprised the committee is holding the hearing without an FBI request because it is, quote, normal to ask the FBI to do more. And the FBI, quote, could have done this in a day or two. This is someone who was a former clerk to Clarence Thomas, uh, a supporter of Judge Kavanaugh's nomination, saying that this could be done. Um, this is, he's also the author of the torture memos. <laughs> this, is right. not, this is not some I sort of liberal snowflake, yes. So then we know that it's possible, <laughs> but like, so put the, put, even put the FBI investigation aside, right? Even if the Republicans decide they don't want an FBI investigation, why wouldn't the Republicans invite other witnesses to testify? Why wouldn't they subpoena Mark Judge, Brett Kavanaugh's friend who Dr. Blasey said was in the room at the time of the assault? Because they do not want to find out the truth. Everything the Republicans have been doing since the moment the Washington Post published this story on Sunday suggests they do not believe Kavanaugh is innocent of this. Because if they did, then the FBI investigation, they would believe the FBI would find that he was innocent or that there was not conclusive proof that this has happened. Therefore, they would want that. You would want the named eyewitness to testify under oath that it did not happen. Then it goes from he said, she said to he said, he said, she said. And so everything they have done suggests that they want to dispense with this with the a simple checking of the box and move on because the more they look, the more worried they are that we will find more about this incident or other incidents. Yeah, I just I can't understand the Mark Judge thing because this is someone who he told the Weekly Standard last week that the allegations are completely false. Uh, but has since told the Judiciary Committee in a letter that he has, quote, no memory of what happened and does not wish to talk to senators about it. 
Um, and, you know, this is someone who's written for a number of different conservative publications. Um, he's written several books. Uh, uh, basically, he wrote a memoir of his struggles with drinking while he went to Georgetown Prep. Includes a character named Bart O'Kavanaugh, who gets drunk a lot in the memoir. Um, but it seems like if this is if this is someone who truly could exonerate potentially Brett Kavanaugh and who was in the room, like, why wouldn't they call him? I'm still confused why they wouldn't have him testify. Like you said, it's 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 clear that either Republicans um, do not believe that Kavanaugh is completely innocent or um, and we'll talk about this soon. They're just, you know, really concerned with the timing of this because they want to rush this through as as much as possible. Um so yeah, and then like they have no good reason for not subpoenaing Mark Judge. Lindsey Graham was asked about this on Tuesday, and he said, "Why don't you want to subpoena Mark Judge?" And he just said, "No reason to." <laughs> oh no, re- yeah, no reason. Why would we subpoena the the other witness, the other witness who was potentially in the room at the time? I think it has a lot to do with the idea that Mark Judge himself is not a particularly compelling character, given some of the things he has written and said about women over time, and also yeah. I think they're nervous about what. Uh, Mark Judge could say about what Brett Kavanaugh or Bart O. Kavanaugh did in high school and how he acted in high school. And so th- like they are this is a whitewash. They are trying to seem like they are being responsive to this new information without actually getting any information because they do not want to slow this down under any circumstances. Dan, do you think the Republicans even want this hearing? Uh, Robert Costa at the Washington Post last night reported that several top Republican lawmakers have told colleagues that they hope Dr. Blasey declines to show up for the hearing, even as they issue statements urging her to do so. What are they afraid of? They're the fucking worst people there's <laughs> nothing more there is nothing more cynical than that to be like we definitely want to know about this we care we actually don't because we know what would happen we know this would be bad for us politically because we have a woman who has made a very credible accusation of sexual assault against their supreme court nominee and the republicans have zero women on the judiciary committee so she would be questioned by 11 men none of whom seem to be particularly sensitive and so th- it is they do not they simply want this to go away as fast as possible. And it says so much about that because there is no vote more consequential that a senator makes than a Supreme Court nomination. Yeah. This is the one where there are no do overs. You take this vote and this person will be on the court for decades. It's not even like a major piece of legislation which can be amended over time. And they are doing this with expressly trying to know as little as possible and they're at risk of putting on the court to be the deciding vote on overturning Roe versus Wade a man who has been credibly accused of sexual assault you would think that you would this would be the one the one constitutional responsibility they would take fucking seriously but instead they are treating it as if it is just something to get done so they can get the lunch quicker i mean <laughs> Even putting the morality of this aside, which I only do because um, we have not seen a lot of evidence of morality from the Republican Party since Donald Trump became president or much before that, Um, just from a pure political standpoint, you know, I've seen both liberals and a a few conservatives write this like, why wouldn't you want if you truly believed that Brett Kavanaugh is innocent, if you believe him when he says this never happened, blah, blah, blah. Why wouldn't you want a full investigation to uh, clear his name as best you can so that when you ultimately take the vote, 
then his confirmation is on firmer ground um, and you and you feel better about it. So then, you know, like if they if they rush this vote Monday um, and more information comes out or we still just have the same cloud of suspicion hanging over it um, there, you know, their vote is not going to be as politically safe as it would be if they have a full investigation that, you know, potentially exonerates this man. It is just the whole thing is just crazy. Like try to like thinking through the politics of this. You're exactly right. The worst possible political scenario for the Republicans would be they try to hold this Potemkin hearing on Monday. Christine Ford decides not to come for all the very obvious reasons that it is uh, not fair or impartial. And then they have the vote. They confirm them by you know, one vote or Mike Pence breaks the tie, and then we learn more information. That is a devastating political mistake heading into an election that is 40-some days away. Or you do this with leaving – Do you don't have the hearing. You don't have an independent FBI investigation. You don't do any sort of due diligence. No new information comes out, but it happens under a cloud of suspicion. That's also bad politics. The problem the Republicans have is twofold, which is, one, in the Trump era – to believe a woman credibly accusing a Republican of sexual assault is to somehow indict Donald Trump by association for his for the allegation of sexual assault against him. We saw this with Steve Wynn. We see this with Jim Jordan and what he is supposed to have been knowledgeable of at um, at Ohio State. And up and down, we see this. And so that they can't. They are unable to take this seriously because if they are to take it seriously, then it opens questions about why they are not taking the 19 allegations against Donald Trump seriously. And then second, there this is there is this win at all costs by any means necessary sort of ethos that dominates the Republicans that that somehow it would be a sign of weakness that would deflate the base to simply swap out Brett Kavanaugh for some other. Um, white male, right-wing ideologue, Federal Society-approved judge. And that somehow that that would be a problem. Yeah, there's a whole list of them. <laughs> Just pick one. It, is, a whole it list. is like solar power. It is an inexhaustible resource. There are so many of them. <laughs> I mean, and also, so, I mean, what are the consequences of Republicans slowing this down a little bit to conduct this investigation? Why are they in such a hurry? There then? are none. There are none. Unless your view is the longer we wait before the vote is the more likely more information has come out against Brett Kavanaugh. That's it. But they there is I hate to say this, but this is not a question about getting this done before the election or whatever. Like McConnell gives two shits about process and norms so that he could very easily. We know this from Merrick Garland. He could easily swap Kavanaugh out, put someone else up next week, have a judiciary hearing the week after that and vote after that. He doesn't care. And all of the protestations from the Democrats and the New York Times editorial board about how this is a bullshit process. He doesn't care. The Republicans don't care. All he wants, he could put a robot on the court if he would vote for corporations to overturn Roe v. Wade. He does not give a shit who it is. The whole the whole thing is so weird. Brett Kavanaugh, no one care like Brett Kavanaugh has a right to due process in a criminal proceeding. Of course, yeah. He does not really have a right to due process 
in whether he gets to be a Supreme Court on the Supreme Court. He doesn't have a right to be on the Supreme Court. The Senate has a responsibility to decide they put the best person possible on the Supreme Court. And when there are questions, and those questions may be unanswerable, as they may be in this case, then the right thing to do is to step aside and put someone else in. It is not Brett Kavanaugh or Bust. They could put anyone else in, but they are making a conscious decision to put someone on the court to be the deciding vote on Roe versus Wade, who may be guilty of sexual assault. There's so much about what is happening here that it is a microcosm that explains the Republican Party in the Trump era in every way possible. And again, if the reason they're not swapping him out is because they think to themselves, you know what? I truly believe this man is innocent. I believe this he is being smeared here. Then you would think they would say, okay, we're going to go through another FBI background check. We're going to have the FBI subpoena various witnesses um, instead of just um, Brett Kavanaugh and Dr. Blasey Ford. So we're going to do this and we're going to find all the facts that we can. And even if the discovery of all those facts and through all those interviews, we cannot conclusively decide what happened here. At least we will have done our due diligence to say we tried to figure out everything we could. And then we can vote on that. But the fact that they're not even doing that, that they refuse to do that so far, is very telling. I mean, do you think do you think that they're worried that if it goes too long, um, the Democrats will potentially take the Senate in the midterms? Because that seems to be, you know, Lindsey Graham sort of gave away the game uh, yesterday when he tweeted that, you know, this is all about delaying this until after the midterms so that if Democrats, you know, take the Senate, um, they have an advantage. But of course... Even if we take the Senate, um, I would not be surprised at all. In fact, I would expect that Mitch McConnell would try to jam through yet another nominee during the lame duck session between November and January. Um, you know, wouldn't wouldn't you expect that? Of course, of course. Now that would obviously lay bare the utter bullshit that was the basis for his argument for why Merrick Garland shouldn't be confirmed. Because if your argument was the voters <laughs> right. should decide, and we therefore we can, we must leave the Supreme Court with an empty seat for nearly a year so that, because uh, we have an upcoming election, then confirming a conservative justice three weeks after the Democrats took the Senate would lay that bare. But also McConnell doesn't care about that. He does not care. And so like this does not, this would not, provi- he would still have, even if it would be, uh, insincere, which is sort of funny to use in the same sentence as McConnell, uh, even though it would be insincere and lacking integrity, he would have the power and ability to put that justice on the court, and he would be under tremendous pressure from the right wing to do so. I wonder if he thinks that in that scenario, Jeff Flake, Bob Corker, uh, who were quite literally on their way out the door at that point because they'll have they're you know not running for election, they're retired will, you know, blanch at him trying to jam through a a nominee in the lame duck. I just can't figure that out. I mean, like, do we, there is nothing we could do to stop them in a lame duck session, Democrats, from nominating another justice, correct? Correct. No procedural things that we could pull. Um, No. Yeah, it would be about Corker, Flake, Collins, Murkowski. And the more and more you, like, just you're creating more of a permission structure for them to say, no, 
Right. Now, senators who are who have lost their reelection or have decided who are headed to retirement usually end up voting with the or more likely to vote with McConnell because they're all uh, applying for jobs at Republican lobbying firms and think tanks at that time. So uh, I don't I wouldn't I'm not would not bet a lot of money on the integrity of Flake or McConnell in that moment or any moment, frankly. Yeah. Brian Boitler was saying to me that it would um, that voting against him in a lame duck would jeopardize their uh, right wing wingnut welfare program. <laughs> yeah, that's, exa- that's exactly when, fucking when right. they leave and get a good job from like the Heritage Foundation or or you know the Koch brothers or something like that. Um, so what happens if Dr. Blasey Ford does not testify on Monday? Um, are the republic? It seems as if the Republicans are just planning to say fuck it, we're going to hold the vote. This is done. Is that what's going to happen? Yes, it seems that way. As of right now on Thursday morning, it seems that they will not make Kavanaugh testify about this under oath uh, if if Dr. Ford is not going to be there. And look, it does seem, you know, people say, well, then why why won't she testify? Why, you know, even even though they're not doing this FBI background investigation, why wouldn't she do it anyway? Um, and, you know, first of all. She hasn't said, neither Dr. Blasey Ford nor her lawyer have said that definitively she won't testify if these conditions aren't met. They just said that they should be met. Um, But also there's this whole issue of, you know, these Republican senators and especially the ones in the Judiciary Committee have seemingly already made up their mind about this. Um, You know, Lindsey Graham, quote, I'll listen to the lady, but we're going to bring this to a close. Very nice. Bob Corker, if we don't hear from both sides on Monday, let's vote. Dean Heller, Dirty Dean Heller, said this last night, quote, we got a little hiccup here with the Kavanaugh nomination. We'll get through this and we'll get off to the races. A fucking hiccup. Allegations of sexual assault against a Supreme Court nominee is a hiccup, is what Dean Heller said. I do not like Dean Heller. I'm going to be very clear on that. Uh, Yeah. And by the way, you know, public service announcement. Dean Heller is in a surprisingly tight contest so far with Jackie Rosen, uh, who was on the pod when we were in Nevada, um, for the Senate. Go donate to Jackie Rosen's campaign today because she should be way ahead of him right now. That guy stands for nothing. <laughs> Absolutely not. This is, this is the guy oh, that- who said he was 99% against Donald Trump and now calls him like a wonderful leader and is calling credible allegations of sexual assault a hiccup. Come on, Nevada. Here is why Dr. Ford, Christine Blasey Ford, is is well within her rights to question whether this would be a fair and impartial hearing. Mike Davis, who has the job of chief counsel for nominations on the Senate Judiciary Committee and would be the person who would question Dr. Ford in in such a hearing, he tweeted the other night, uh, last night, I guess, unfazed and determined, we will confirm Judge Kavanaugh Hashtag confirm Kavanaugh. Hashtag SCOTUS. I would note that that is a terrible use of <laughs> hashtags, first off, which is a real pet peeve of mine. But this is the person who was supposed to be leading the impartial investigation of what actually happened. Unfazed and determined, which is like all Republicans in the Trump era, he is too stupid to not say the quiet part out loud, which is that this bo- this hearing is a is a box-checking exercise and that their intention is to... Have the hearing, not have the hearing, whatever it is, con- no matter what is said, confirm Kavanaugh. Now, he has, of course, deleted these tweets uh, and uh, locked his Twitter account um, for both violations of general hashtag etiquette and being an idiot. 
Uh, but he, this is like, I, I completely understand why Christine Blasey Ford, who was facing death threats and tremendous media scrutiny would be at least skeptical that Chuck Grassley would hold a impartial hearing to try to get to the bottom of what happened. You know, it's just, again, it seems like in any other situation, except when there's allegations of sexual assault against a woman, the thing you would ask yourself, the thing that investigators would ask themselves is like, who has something to gain by lying here? What what possible, what does Christine Blasey Ford, what did she have to gain by just making up this story this many years later, coming forward, thrusting herself and her family into the national spotlight, getting death threats, um, having to move out of her home? Why? Why would you speak up if you were not 100% sure that this happened there's just no re- what do you have to gain from this why would she have why would she yes. have told her therapist this in 2012 why would her husband have said this too why would she have done these things if it wasn't true <laughs> only with sexual assault do we doubt this kind of stuff and you wonder we wonder why women don't come forward yes and we only do it when it serves the specific political purposes of the republican party these days and then it's like, you know, what does Brett Kavanaugh have to gain by lying? A Supreme Court seat. <laughs> and what do we know about Brett Kavanaugh so far? And we've seen this on the last pod. We know that he has lied in the past. We know that he's lied to something about something as simple as Donald Trump, con- you know, uh, consulted more people and looked at more Supreme Court nominees than any president in history for this nomination. I didn't receive Democratic stolen documents in my email. I didn't work on the prior nomination. All things that don't happen to be true, whether you, you know, forget about the perjury argument, whether you believe it's technically perjury or not. He has dissembled and been dishonest through this whole confirmation hearing. And we know that because he is a Republican operative um, first that has been trying to dissemble and be dishonest his entire career, you know, so that he can, you know, reach higher office. Yeah, he is, has without question been a incredibly ambitious entitled person who lies effortlessly in the search of greater power for power and success for himself and power and success for the Republican Party that is who he has been that in and of itself is not disqualifying from the court but we only get nine justices until of course Democrats take over and then we pack the court with uh six members of Antifa. Um, <laughs> but it's, um, oh. Oh, this, this clip's going to end up on, uh, on Tucker Carlson's show. <laughs> I, can't, I, can't, I can't. It's great. Great for my key writing. Um, the, and it just, I am just so mystified by this. Uh, the Republican approach to this has been so revealing in some ways. The people who are arguing that this is uh horseplay or roughhousing, uh, is disgusting. The people saying, well, even if true, can we really hold against him a mistake he made in high school? Which seems to be a standard they only apply to rich white men from prep schools and not anyone else also, in this country. Which also reveals that they don't really believe Brett Kavanaugh. Because why engage in this hypothetical argument about whether it was horseplay or what happened in high school if you believe Kavanaugh, the story that Kavanaugh's going with is that this never happened, that it, there was no such incident that ever took place. So, and yet they're already going past that to argue, well, but if it did take place, if he's lying, then it's still okay. 
That's the argument a, they're making. They're trying to create a system where no matter what is revealed, Kavanaugh still gets to be on the Supreme Court. The whole thing is right. also weird because Kavanaugh was not the person McConnell wanted. McConnell wanted the other two right-wing ideologues on the three-person shortlist. And Trump, of course, and we this is overhangs a lot of this, but Trump, of course, wanted Kavanaugh because Kavanaugh was the only one with a publicly articulated view about the inability of people like Bob Mueller to subpoena and investigate the president of the United States. And again, I just, I don't understand the Republican calculus on, you know, replacing him with some, someone else. Um, there's this Daily Beast story uh, that ran yesterday. Headline is, Team Trump, if we ditch Kavanaugh, we're signing our own death warrant. Um, do you think that's true? I mean, do you think there's truth to the fact that if they... You know, if they pull down the Kavanaugh nomination, uh, nominate Judge Amy Barrett tomorrow or Thomas Hardiman or any of the other people on the list, that somehow that and, and then also confirm that person even before the election. If they do it tomorrow, if they do it Monday, if they do it next week, they could probably confirm that person before November. You think that would hurt the base at that point? I understand why they think that, because just the Republican mentality is when at all costs, never admit, this is, it's it's Trump. This is Trumpism infected the Republican Party, which is when at all costs, never admit defeat, never allow the establishment, even though they are the establishment, you know, liberals, the media, et cetera, to force them to backtrack. And so I understand why they think that. They're also wrong. In the immediate short term, the way this would play out is they would announce, Kavanaugh would announce he was withdrawing or they would announce they were withdrawing the nomination. There would be a avalanche of stories saying that the Republicans blinked. They made a huge mistake and they blinked. And then Hannity and Janine Pirro and Lou Dobbs and the rest of Trump's Kishik advisors would attack him. But then they would nominate someone else and then we would move on. It would all be about everyone would grab an oar and get in and start uh, trying to confirm that person. So I think it would be a momentary blink. I don't think it would have. Certainly, if you were to weigh the various political outcomes, that is much more desirable than confirming him and then finding out much more information about this allegation or other ones. Right. That's what I'm saying. Like sticking with Kavanaugh comes with a gigantic political risk because of two potential developments. One, that more information comes out about Dr. Blasey's Ford's allegation that confirms um, what she alleged. Or two... Other women coming forward to say that they uh, that, you know, that Brett Kavanaugh potentially sexually assaulted them as well, which in this Me Too era, we have seen in almost every situation um, when a man is accused of this. I'm saying multiple women have come forward. That happened with Trump. That happened with Harvey Weinstein. That happened with Al Franken. That happened with a whole bunch of different people who are accused of these things. Multiple women came out. So are they they really they're going to take that risk? That this is it? This is the only story out there about Brett Kavanaugh? It's also just, even putting the politics aside, which I know we never do anymore, but if you were, this is a lifetime appointment. You can probably find someone for the position who is not under the cloud of suspicion for sexual assault. Like, he does not have a right to that seat. Or at the, or at the very least, at the very least, you can wait a couple weeks to conduct a fair independent nonpartisan investigation which the senate judiciary committee is incapable of doing as we just heard 
from you reading Mike Davis's tweets, who is the chief counsel on Grassley's committee. They are incapable of conducting an independent investigation. But the FBI could. But the FBI could. At least the FBI that, you know, most of us know, maybe not the FBI that Donald Trump has depicted over the last year. I do. Wa- sure I do is- wonder about that. Whether Trump's view of the FBI is being part some part of some bizarre deep state conspiracy affects their willingness to do this. Yeah. No. I'm sure it's possible. Um, well, this will all play out in the coming days. Um, who knows what will have developed by the time you listening to this pod? Uh, Grassley did say that uh, he set a deadline for Friday at 10 a.m. for uh, testimony. You know, written testimony from uh, Dr. Blasey Ford. So um, I don't know if that will happen. We don't know, you know, what's going to happen. But um, we will continue to follow the story because, um, you know, I think by Monday we'll we'll know a lot more. All right, let's talk about the midterms. Uh, Democrats got a few wake up calls from Texas this week. Um, one from a special election, the other from a poll, a couple of polls um, in the special election. Uh, in Texas uh, that happened this Tuesday, Republicans won a state Senate runoff in what was widely considered to be a safe Democratic district in South Texas, where more than 60 percent of the people voting are Latino. Meanwhile, uh, a new poll from Quinnipiac indicated that Beto O'Rourke is trailing Ted Cruz by nine points in the race for the U.S. Senate in Texas. Um, And more specifically, that only 54 percent of Hispanic voters polled favored O'Rourke Um, That's the same percentage that Democrat Wendy Davis got in 2014 when she lost the governor's race by 20 points. And generally, um, outside of Texas, particularly in polls in places like California, in Florida, um, we have seen Democrats underperforming with Latinos uh, in a lot of these midterm polls. Dan, what do you think is going on here? I don't know, but I really want to find out quickly because it's very concerning. I'm not overly concerned about... Uh, one poll in the Texas Senate race. There was another poll that came out the next day that had Beto up to. My guess is that race is close. And I would, be, I would actually be shocked if Beto was winning at this point just for reasons of name ID. And he has to get a significant number of both non-voters, obviously, or infrequent voters, and, but also independents, uh, a large chunk of whom are unlikely to be decided at this point. But so the poll doesn't yeah. that individual poll doesn't worry me. What does worry me is the what I think we're seeing is a trend of um, underperformance uh, among Hispanic voters across the Sun Belt, both in California, Arizona, Nevada, and uh, in Texas. And we need and if we and we we probably don't take the house or may or may not take the house at least without doing very well in those areas particularly California. And so it's concerning. Yeah, we see that in um Gilsus Narrows's race in the 39th in California. Um he's a little further behind the Republican in that race. He's one, you know, one of the crooked eight districts then um someone like Harley Ruda or Mike Levin or Katie Hill, uh some of these other candidates. And then, of course, like we've seen this in Florida. Now, you know, there's a couple of reasons for this. If on on the bright side, um, typically it is difficult. It is more difficult to poll Latino voters. Their their response rates are a little lower, particularly in midterm races. Um, you know, but also it's 
you know, it's a it's a real concern since a lot of those districts are districts that we have to win. Uh, if you look at that special election in Texas, because, you know, it's always better to analyze an actual election than polls. <laughs> um, the seat there had been vacated by a Democrat who was convicted of 11 felonies. And the Democrat running for that seat had served for two decades in the Texas House and was tagged during the race as a career politician by the Republican who is Hispanic and would be the first Hispanic Republican to hold that seat. So you can argue that there are some mitigating circumstances in that special election that made it particularly difficult. Um, But also, you know, I think, and you know, you've read this, you know, in different accounts of Beto's campaign and different campaigns in Texas, I think Latino turnout is always a concern. And I don't know that campaigns have figured out ways to um, effectively reach the Latino community. Um, A lot of experts told Vox in a piece yesterday that uh, Latino anger at Trump and the Republicans is at an all-time high, but they're worried that may not translate into turnout. Um, Matt Barreto of Latino Decisions, he's a managing partner there, said voters have to believe that through their vote, they are alleviating their frustration and the candidate they vote for will work to solve the issues they care about. Anger is not enough. Um, there was a poll from Naleo, a Latino organization that said 44% of Latinos think the Democratic Party is ignoring or being hostile to Latinos. 76% think the Republican Party is ignoring or being hostile to Latinos. So obviously awful numbers for the GOP. But the question is, can Democrats, you know, take advantage of that? And that re- that seems to be an open question. Also in that poll, 60% of respondents said that they have not been contacted by a candidate or a campaign from the Democratic side this far, even in competitive districts. I think that's a very important point, because often when we have these discussions about voter group X not being enthusiastic, and we this with this discussion happened around the African-American vote before the Virginia election. Um, like, why aren't they turning out? Why, why aren't they... Uh, registering to vote, we accept whatever the whatever the conversation is, and it is the point the like the point of that argument should be why aren't Democratic candidates doing a better job of reaching out to these communities? Why aren't Democratic candidates doing a better job of having a message that is compelling to these communities as opposed to just haranguing voters, right. which is not a particularly constructive exercise? And so that is a, the numbers you gave about uh, voter contact in those areas. Is concerning. Like, why haven't we been able to translate the tremendous uh, enthusiasm and I think very good organizations that has been part of so many of these races? Uh, why hasn't that led to greater incidents of contact between campaigns and members of the Hispanic community? I think there's some very real questions that has to be asked here, but I think there are questions that the Democratic Party and the Democratic candidates in question here must ask themselves. Yeah. And one uh, piece of good news is. Uh, Beto's campaign launched its first Spanish language television ad just this week. Um, so, you know, one would hope that there will be a lot more of that from from Beto's campaign and obviously like from other Democratic campaigns. I would I would love to hear from um, pollsters, strategists, organizers who have run races in districts, in places with um, heavy Latino populations. I'd love to hear what they have to say about all of this. So let us know. Reach out on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, it is um, it is interesting too that the special elections that we've paid so much attention to have largely been in districts and states that with uh disproportionately small Hispanic populations. And so right. we, this is we have not fully tested 
this uh, this proposition. We're talking about enthusiasm, um, you know, enthusiasm advantage, which groups are engaged. We haven't really tested the proposition of what a special election looks like in a uh, heavily Latino district or state. And I think to your point, there's some specific um, uh, circumstances around this special election in Texas, but we should not dismiss it because I do think yeah, no. it bespeaks a larger problem of underperformance that we need to be concerned about. Yes. So that leads us to our candidate of the day, Gina Ortiz Jones. She's the Democratic candidate for Texas's 23rd congressional district which spans from San Antonio to outside of El Paso. Gina served in the Iraq War within the United States Air Force and then worked in the Obama administration. Um, If Ortiz Jones wins, she'll be the first Filipina-American congresswoman as well as the first woman to represent the 23rd District. Uh, The 23rd District is currently represented by two-term incumbent Republican Will Hurd. However, both times Heard was elected, he won by a margin of two or fewer percentage points. And in 2016, the 23rd voted to elect Hillary Clinton by three and a half points. Uh, The district is currently rated as leaning Republican, um, but it is winnable. Dan, what do you think of this race and what do we know about uh, Will Heard, her opponent? Well, I'm very glad that we have, after our rigorous process, bestowed our endorsement on Gina Ortiz-Jones. Congratulations to you. Yeah. Uh, the questionnaire was was voluminous. The interview was long, uh, but she came through with flying colors. I will. It's worth noting that Will Hurd was once a guest on Pod Save the World. Uh, That's right. But I don't care. We need to beat him. <laughs> yeah. Well, look. I mean, the, the the statistic you need to about Will Hurd, and you're right. He is he is one of the more reasonable Republicans in Congress, to be completely honest. But he's voted with Trump 95 percent of the time, and that's that seems to be the most salient point here. Um, that he is a reliable vote for Donald Trump. And again, this election is about if you want to check Donald Trump, if you want to have some check on his out-of-control power that he has and everything that he's doing, you've got to have a Democratic Congress. And if there are Republicans out there who are only voting with Donald Trump, you know, 40% of the time, 30%, that would be one thing. But um, Will Hurd, despite the fact that he is a thoughtful guy who says the right things, votes with Trump 95% of the time. Yeah, he wrote some New York Times op-ed, which everyone applauded for uh, the distance he was giving himself from Trump. But I don't care about your New York Times op-eds. They mean nothing to me. What what I care about, even more than your voting 95% of the time with Trump, is your vote for Kevin McCarthy, Jim Jordan, uh, or whoever else to be be Speaker of the House. That's what I care about. I care that if Will Hurd is elected, he will be one more vote to ensure that the main function of the Republican Congress is to not investigate anything and to obstruct justice for Donald Trump. And I don't really want that. I don't know about you, but I am against that. Yeah. And look, uh, Gina Ortiz-Jones could really use uh, everyone's help. Uh, Will Hurd, unlike some of, unlike many of the Republican incumbents, has not been outraised by Jones, Ortiz-Jones. Um, through the end of June, Mr. Hurd had $2 million cash on hand compared to only $1 million in uh, Ortiz-Jones's coffers. So, um, Please, you know, give to Gina Ortiz Jones. Um, she could use people's help, and it, it's a it's a tough district again on for turnout. This is another, you know, it's a heavily Latino population there too. So this is like one of these areas that we're talking about, and um, yeah, it's going to be a really tough race. Also, um, we've done a really cool thing on Vote Save America, which is we've asked uh, candidates to answer the question, "Why are you running?" And um, a whole bunch of candidates have already sent in 
videos that they've taken themselves, some on their iPhones, of why they're running for office. Um, they're not just you know your typical talking point stuff that you see in an ad. They're really cool videos, and we got one from Gina Ortiz Jones, which is fantastic. So check out those videos on votesaveamerica.com um, to hear from the candidates themselves uh, instead of us, and um, it's it's really cool. So endorsement in the twenty third, Gina Ortiz Jones again. It was a uh, it was a tight one, but you know we came through. Tommy voted for Will Hurd. I'm just kidding. Uh, Tommy did not vote for Will Hurd. What's that, Tommy? <laughs> he did not. No, yeah. Even even a pod save the world guest, Tommy had to uh, vote against him. Um, okay. When we come back, you will hear the interview that Tommy and I did with Chef Jose Andres. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25. Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you, and he's taking them seriously, but not literally. Take an average of the polls. Don't forget about any one poll. And the thing that we try to tell everyone in every episode of this podcast is a poll that has Biden up to and a poll that has Biden down to, they all tell you the exact same thing, which is this is a very, very close race. The goal of this podcast is to help people understand polling and freak out about it just a little bit less. Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button. Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber-exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at crooked.com slash friends. On the pod today, we have one of the greatest chefs in the world. On the planet. On the planet. And he's the author of the new book, We Fed an Island, The True Story <laughs> of Rebuilding Puerto Rico One Meal at a Time, our pal, Jose Andres. Welcome. So happy to be here. Great to have you. I know. I can't believe it's the first time we were talking to you since we did this podcast. Is the first time you brought somebody with an accent? <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, you you had some accents. You sound yeah. good, but not like mine. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. Sounds beautiful, Jose. Um, so we're going to be sharing this conversation uh, on the day that's a year since Hurricane Maria made landfall on Puerto Rico. It's a place where you spent so much of the past year helping to feed people and rebuild. What should people know about the challenges that are still facing? 
uh, people who still live on Puerto Rico? Well, I think the main challenge is how how you have like a double life, right? In, in one side, we need to be, the island is looking at bringing tourism again. And you have to be selling that the island is a beautiful place, which actually, if you want to help Puerto Rico, right now you should go online, buy your tickets, make a reservation in a beautiful hotel or rent a house, and go to Puerto Rico. And that's an effective way to be helping the people in the island. But at the same time, today, Puerto Rico is facing problems that didn't begin in Maria, but they are a problem that almost they are over a century old. Puerto Rico has been treated like a colony uh, when the Spanish were very much uh, in control of Puerto Rico, but then when America took over Puerto Rico, it's been a whole bunch of things that they've always been pushing the island of Puerto Rico down. Everybody hears about the Jones Act. Well, the Jones Act is almost like a way to say Puerto Rico is part of America, but everything you buy in Puerto Rico is going to be so much more expensive. More expensive than, let's say, Haiti or any other island in the Caribbean. Why? Yes, Puerto Rico has challenges, has a big debt, but if, if the homeland, if America, if Washington, Congress, Senate doesn't help Puerto Rico to move away from its debt with those unfair taxes, the Jones Act, Puerto Ricans will never have the opportunity to bring their island back to where it should be without so much debt and looking towards the future. So, you see, it's a lot of issues. Yes, the, the electric grid is a mess, it's old, but all has to do with that massive debt that the island has and where actually it's like Washington, D.C. They pay taxes, but they have no representation until we don't give Puerto Rico a voice in Congress, in the Senate, in Washington. Puerto Rico will be treated like a second class uh, island, like a second class part of the United States. And we need to change that once and for all. So just a couple days after the, the hurricane hit the island, um, you jumped on a commercial flight, one of the first ones into San Juan. You had, I think, a colleague with you. You had as much cash as you could get out of the ATMs at the time. Why did you decide to, to head down? And, and what did you guys do when you got there? Well, um, I've been in uh, hurricanes and earthquakes before. And me personally, I've always had that call to go, mainly to help, but mainly to learn. Uh, you cannot learn just by only watching TV or listening to radio. Uh, even I learn a lot when I hear your podcast. But I learn when I'm there and I watch and I um, try to bring a solution. In my case, I'm a cook. I try to feed people. But then you began saying that you do other things. Why did I go? Because I saw that the hurricane was going to be massive and I saw that devastation was going to be obvious. So I went, but I thought well, I was going to be there four or five days. I told my wife, I'll be back by the weekend. Hmm. Uh, that Friday night, I call her and I say, listen, I don't know when I'm coming back, but the problem here is is huge. It's not about a few thousand people in an arena, you know, uh, that they are having shelter and where we need to feed them. This is an entire piece of America, 3.5 million Americans that right now they have no electricity, no cell, but more important, no water or no food. And what was bad is that I didn't see a plan, a real plan, to overcome the obstacles of not being prepared. Everybody has recognized that the federal government was not prepared. You know what thing? I don't blame them for that. Why? Because it was a very difficult season. A lot of hurricanes, one after the other, was chaos. And this was catastrophic. Maria was like nothing we've ever seen. Okay, we were not prepared. This is okay. 
What is not okay is that we don't try then to overcome the issues and have a quicker, faster response. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you, you get there, you get on the ground. Um, how do you begin to triage, to set up uh, a station to feed you know, hundreds of thousands of people a night, different locations, all these chefs, all the food? I mean, how did you get that going? More often than not, when we have a big problem, the weight of the problem can paralyze yeah. everybody, the leaders. So you have to start breaking the problems into smaller ones. So the issue was we, we had to feed one, two million people. It was not very clear how many people were going to be hungry, but the number was huge. So FEMA at the time, at headquarters, they were talking the right game. They were saying, we need to feed two million people a day, and probably it's two, three meals a day, six million meals a day. Six million meals a day. Plus, was no water on the island. Was water on the island, but was um, very much a political problem. Uh, bad communication between different agencies within the Puerto Rican government. So you had to bring almost three million gallons a day into an island. Wow. You know, the space of three million gallons used to bring them, forget it, but to distribute them. So the problem was huge. What we do? What do we do, chefs like me? First day we did thousand meals. Second day, we did 2,000. Before we knew, we were not just receiving orders. We were searching like scouts who is in need of meals. We began feeding every single hospital. Two became four, four became eight. Before we know, our main kitchen is too small. We began in our little restaurant in Santurce. We rented the parking lot ahead, across. Uh, that parking lot became like a tourist uh, place. Everybody was coming to see what we were doing. We needed an arena. I got the arena. We went from... 10,000 meals in that first kitchen to the second kitchen, 75,000 meals a day. We went from one kitchen to 26. At one point, we had 18 kitchens operating at once. We went from 20 uh, volunteers to 25,000. We went from 1,000 meals a day to 150,000 meals a day. You see what we do? We went from one city to 78 municipalities, including Vieques and Culebra. That's what you do. You start solving the problem and doubling and pushing. But you don't try to feed everybody this first day. You don't try to solve every single problem. But by scaling slowly, we were able to do amazing things. You break the problem into smaller portions, and then you start dividing, but then you conquer. I needed chefs. I call. Before I knew, I had more than 20 chefs of the top quality from arenas coming into San Juan. We began having big armies that we began deploying like SEAL teams one kitchen at a time. Before we knew, we were operating in 26 kitchens. It's amazing. You write in the book about how the traditional systems of disaster relief don't really work, whether it's the federal government or the Red Cross. Um, what, what did you learn about those traditional systems, and, and how do we go about starting to fix those? I mean, number one, we, we need to understand we are, again, in hurricane season, Hurricane Alley. Probably if you see the Atlantic and the Pacific, we have almost like six, seven potential hurricanes happening almost at the same time. This mm-hmm. is like something we've never seen before. And I only want to say that the men and women in the federal government, in many of the big NGOs, to me, they are heroes. But some, somehow what's, what's missing is a new way of leadership. If things happen, like let's say in Houston, and you put everybody in a big uh, shelter like the convention center, and you have 10, 15,000 people, that's somehow easy to manage. You feed them, you give them a place to sleep, you give them blankets, you give them food, you give them uh, medicines, whatever they need. 
But what happens when the problem becomes something like you never saw? For example, Katrina. Everybody remembers about the Superdome. We put more than 10, 20,000 men and women in the Superdome because nobody planned for anything else. And for many days, we had men and women at the Superdome without food, with almost without water. And many things happened on that Superdome, as we know. It was, was almost like a, a disaster, a mini disaster within the disaster. You know what an arena is? Everybody thinks an arena it's uh, yeah, a place where you go to watch NBA players or, or football games. No, no, that's a big lie. An arena is a gigantic restaurant that happens you have NBA players for entertainment. Right. So if you activate every single place where in normal days you can buy food, all of a sudden you have everything you need to be feeding people. The only thing you need is somebody leaving, bringing the food in, bringing the chefs, the volunteers, Food is not going to be an issue. Water should not be an issue. Now we need to take care of the other many issues. In the case of uh, Puerto Rico, the issue was food. Food was available. Everybody said, Jose, you were brilliant. You were able to get the food there. I didn't do anything. The food was in the island. The only thing I did was find who had the most quantity of food, open a, an account, start paying them, and start placing orders. And the food began showing up. There was many other logistical things we had to do. Uh, the trays to deliver, the teams to deliver, the kitchens, the generators to maintain the kitchens with refrigeration, many other things that logistically, quite frankly, we did a very good job. But essentially, uh, we need to start only uh, having like football teams have, special team coaches. We need to have at FEMA, at the big NGOs, people that specialize in the unforeseen circumstances that may change every plan you had. Because when we don't do that, something goes in the wrong direction and nobody seems to be adapting like we do in the private sector to the new circumstances. And then is when chaos becomes almost unmanageable. Uh, you you were pretty public in the book and I think in, in interviews about your frustration with uh, FEMA, the Red Cross, like a lot of the big infrastructure that's supposedly in place to deal with these kinds of disasters. Have they reached out to you at all since you've been talking about your experience, since you did so much work to feed people to say, okay, what could we learn from you? Can we like have a dialogue? Um, well, with FEMA, we've been trying, but we've been very, uh, I would say, unlucky. Uh, I'm going to put the blame on myself or maybe don't try hard enough. But with FEMA, we've been very unlucky. On the sense of Red Cross, I think we we... We've been in the last two uh, big fires in California over the last year. We've been in Ventura at the car fire, and we had an amazing dialogue with Red Cross. And very much, uh, Red Cross will tell you we were able to feed almost all the shelters that were being managed by Red Cross. So there we had really a, a very good learning experience, and there I saw the best that Red Cross has to offer. But again, that's the, to me, those are very simple situations that... Red Cross actually is very good managing those shelters and finding partners to feed the people and all the amazing things they do. But again, I go back to the things that um, when we are unprepared for something like Katrina, when Maria happened and, and the problem was so spectacular that for me, I had the plan to feed almost one million people a day. And my frustration was that I understand I was a guy that came from nowhere with a funny accent and dreams of feeding everybody. But actually, we had the plan. And for me, instead of talking, what I did is I began cooking because I wanted to show them how 
we could adapt to the new circumstances. So in the in, in the side of Red Cross, I think uh, it's going well. Our partnership, I think, the future of NGOs. NGOs cannot do everything. We need to start specializing. We need to start specializing. And if you don't specialize, what happens is you try to be everything, and then you very much, you are nothing. So if you specialize, you can become very good at certain areas. World Central Kitchen, we specialize in feeding people, but more important, in adapting to those circumstances that nobody saw coming. That's what we are very good at. So FEMA overall, I think uh, right now, you know, with all the, the hurricanes, I think I see that what's been happening there, I see like almost the way they are approaching everything has changed. I think they are more proactive in showcasing that, look, we have food, we have this, we have that, we have electricity, we have people ready for water issues. We have, and this is good. That's what they have to be doing. They have to be just really getting ahead of themselves and again, prepare for the unforeseen circumstances. You became an American citizen in 2013. You have been a fierce advocate for immigration reform. Obviously, with Donald Trump as president, uh, the idea that we're ever going to pass immigration reform seems quite distant now. How do we get the country back to a place and our politics back to a place where we can come together and actually pass immigration reform or at least get the country in a place where people can start talking like we <laughs> talking you know talking in a way that might get us to, to real progress on immigration I think on on a hurricane like what happened in Maria or in this season of hurricanes we have the answer a hurricane is chaos a failed immigration reform is chaos a hurricane to solve the problems that the chaos of a hurricane creates you need every American together know who is Republican know who is Democrat now, what do you believe how food should be shared or not, but together to trying to transform problems into opportunities. Immigration reform is something I'm very astonished because we have a businessman, a true businessman, as our leader. And businessmen usually are pragmatic people. Um, President Trump calls himself a super good businessman, very pragmatic, and who can't make a deal with anybody. Right now, as the economy keeps improving for the last uh, eight, nine years, non-stop. Uh, one of the main issues is that we have no workforce. It's very hard to be hiring people. And it's very hard if you are a Republican, or it's very hard if you are a Democrat. So only for pure American pragmatism, used to give the opportunity to the dreamers that they are, as an, an American as, pre as President Trump, you or I, used to give them the opportunity to finally have their dream and become full American citizens. When all the contrary, we're thinking about kicking them out, which is dividing the country apart and kicking out two million people, Americans to me, which is trained workforce to keep moving America forward. So what's the way? I think we all need to stop talking only to the people that think like us. I feel like sometimes we are all like seals, that we speak to our audience and we all clap like <laughs> a seal after he's given us her din. And that's okay. But I think we all, include you two, mm -hmm. and myself, and everybody else, we all need to try to do uh, more to try to reach to those that don't think like you. Almost for myself, going with World Central Kitchen to, let's say, areas that maybe think immigrants should be away, or that undocumented should be kicked out. Or, almost when I go to give a plate of food to somebody that maybe is different than me, 
and and they look at that plate of food and they thank you for what you're doing for them. Almost is one of many ways we can all be trying to reach beyond the aisle. But we all are going to have to do better in trying to understand what others think. So they are not afraid of people like me with an accent or people like me that, that I am an immigrant and I'm a proud American. But the understanding that if we don't try to reach above, uh, beyond the aisle, if we don't tell people that senators in Washington are having a salad every day, that that salad has been picked by an undocumented immigrant. If you start giving facts in a, in a genuine way, I think it's a way we're going to start reaching to others. And we have to be persistent, that yes. But I think immigration reform, I always said, is not a problem for America to solve. It's an opportunity for America to seize. And I do believe that having a pro-business president in the White House will tell me that immigration reform for a second will pass quicker rather than later. But now we're talking about building walls to keep everybody away. This is going to put America in harm's way because before we know, we're not going to have workers to keep moving the economy forward. Um, okay, so along along those lines of what you just said, you're working at one of your restaurants. Donald Trump shows up. He not only orders some food, but he wants you to sit down and join him. What do you cook him, and what do you say? What do you talk about? How do you reach across the aisle to him? Man, I I I think uh, that will not happen. <laughs> we know he likes hamburgers the, and McDonald's. No, he likes. He's a man of his uh, traditions, and he likes to go to places that they usually carry the Trump name. I don't know if it has mm-hmm. something to do with him. <laughs> um, but I think I will treat him with with respect, even he's not giving respect to others. And obviously, I will try um, for a second to have the same uh, conversation I'm having with you, and saying, "Sir, do you understand?" that the vast majority of the fresh food we are eating in this country, chances are, chances are we have an undocumented farmer uh, picking up this uh, carrot, this lettuce of those beets, or taking care of the well-done meat you like to eat. Uh, I think that's pragmatism to a degree. Quite frankly, during Maria, I wish I had the same contacts that they had with previous White Houses. Mm Because I, I almost felt like if maybe President Trump, not like I was his best friend, but I knew many of you around him, that they would pick up the phone and say, you know, we have a big problem here. But actually, believe it or not, I have the solution. Can you give me the power to show that the solution is used as simple as let's do it? Uh, but I think President Trump, we're going to have to keep uh, working harder, not with him, but the people that believe that him is the savior of all the things that are wrong with America. I think I think the solutions uh, that um, we need to bring forward to create this amazing America that we all believe in are not by leaders that try to tell you that we are all an enemy of each other, but by people that try to bring us all together to keep moving America as one forward under one flag. Jose Andres, uh, thank you so much for joining the pod. The book is We Fed an Island, The True Story of Rebuilding Puerto Rico One Meal at a Time. Um, go check it out. And thank you so much for all the work that you do. Uh, thank We're you all inspired much. by you all the time. When we come back, the interview I did with Crooked contributor, Julissa Arce. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. 
Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference... Sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com, and this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. On the pod today, I am joined by Julissa Arce, um, who is the author of a brand new book, Someone Like Me, How One Undocumented Girl Fought for Her American Dream. Welcome back. Thank you. It's so good to be back. I'm so glad that I'm back. So the last time I was on the pod, it was to talk about when DACA got rescinded and that was such a shitty topic so I'm glad to be back to talk about something that I'm excited about yeah and you've been just crushing crooked conversations I Um, have and you have a special uh, a special series out this week on crooked conversations thanks for asking John (laughs) (laughs) we just talked about it on on the pod but I want to hear about it from you I just gave a quick brief Awesome. So I'm super excited about this special um, Crooked Conversation series that we're that we're calling Defining Us. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's all about exploring the Latinx, Latino community identity, culture and future. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's really exciting to explore some of the history of Latinos in America that a lot of people don't know about and therefore they think that we just like we just got here like we're newcomers to America where right. we have like a long history of being in the country mm-hmm. um, and then also exploring like what does it mean to be a growing population that one day is going to be the majority minority population and then also not have the kind of political power that we need to have and so how do we harness our community to come together to get out to vote to check out vote save america yes um and and so i'm really excited the first one came out yesterday and you're doing with grace grace para from hysteria yes and i'm so glad she's so grace is amazing and she's hilarious and i'm so glad that 
she said yes when I was like, hey, let's do this. And she was like, absolutely. Um, and she she brings such a different perspective to the conversation mm-hmm. um, and also a lot of comedic relief, yeah, which is amazing. Very funny. Yeah. So one question on that, um, because Dan and I were just talking about this on today's pod. We we're talking about uh, Latino turnout mm-hmm. in the midterms. And this week there was a special election in a state Senate seat in Texas where it was like a uh, 60% plus Latino voting population and the Republican won this seat that should have been Democratic. That combined with, we've been seeing in a lot of polls, which, you know, polls go back and forth, but um, polls in California, polls in Florida, polls in Texas and the Sun Belt, that Latino turnout may not be, at least Latino response rate in these polls, may not be as heavily Democratic as um, some of the other uh, demographic groups that we're seeing in the midterm. What are your thoughts on sort of Latino voting potential, turnout, how difficult it is uh, to get Latinos to turn out? Is it the responsibility of Democratic campaigns? Are they screwing up by not reaching out more? Is it something more fundamental about the Democratic Party? What do you think? Yeah. So a few thoughts on that. And we're going to have like a whole crooked conversation Excellent. to talk about this. So, mm-hmm. But I'll give you some some brief thoughts on it. One, I think that the Democratic Party has made a mistake of only talking to Latinos about immigration mm-hmm. and saying the reason you need to vote Democrat is because we, we're we're pro-immigrant and we believe in immigration. And, and the fact is that polls have shown that Latinos actually care about health care, jobs, and education before they care about immigration. Mm. Right? And immigration is a huge issue in our community, like when you think about what's happening at, w- at the border with the kids and right. the fact that we still don't have a DREAM Act. And, and so it does affect the Latino population in a disproportionate way. However, we also care about where are our kids going to school and how are we gonna get healthcare? And the Latinas made 54 cents on the dollar when compared to uh, white males. And so all of these things affect us. And so I think that we need to do a much better job of speaking to the Latino population and, and the Latino voters as though they're like full human beings that are capable of caring about more things than just one issue. Right. That's one thing. Okay. The other thing um, that I'm really excited to explore is sort of like how religion plays a, a part in the Latino voting block, mm. um, because there are a lot of Latinos who are Catholic, who are Christian, who therefore um, vote Republican for one s- single issue, mm-hmm. right? And that's the, the pro-life, pro-choice issue. Mm-hmm. And so then there is that. Um, and then I also think that, that Latinos have been disillusioned with um, with the Democratic Party, yeah. right? And um, although we care about more than immigration, like we have been disappointed because we're promised a lot when it comes to immigration and it, it just hasn't happened. Like the results haven't been there. Right. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we were talking about this before, um, but uh, when I did The Wilderness in that episode, I talked to Ali Nurani and he um, he did say that one of the strategies they used was um, they ran these ads mm-hmm. with um, pastors and sort of religious overtones, sort of reframing the immigration issue as about our common humanity and we are all God's children and found that, you know, that had a great effect in sort of reducing the opposition to immigration reform, not only, you know, among um, white evangelical Christians. Mm-hmm. even. Um, so I do think there's I think the Democrats sort of sometimes forget how religious the Latino community is. Yeah, there's a lot of Latinos who um, are torn. You know, I have I have a lot of friends who um, 
who vote Republican because of this one issue. I think that's changing now because right. they're seeing just how the Republican Party has become like incredibly toxic and 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 racist, frankly. And right. so I think that they're starting to like come around on that issue um, yeah. and like feeling like I can't possibly vote uh, Republican anymore because mm-hmm. of what's happening. One thing, one one other thing I'll add about the the Latino bloc is is just that the fact that you know we we tend to talk about the Latino voter as though we were all the same. Right, that was good, yeah. And there is such a huge diversity within the Latino community. Mm-hmm. So some of those nuances, I think we also have to be more mindful about recognizing mm-hmm. when we're talking to Latino voters. Which goes back to your first point, um, which is that immigration can't be the only issue that we talk about because right. because Latino voters are so ideologically diverse and have so many different beliefs. Talking about healthcare, jobs, um, wages, education. Um, would be important for Democrats to reach out. Uh, I want to talk about your book. So Someone Like Me is a young adult adaptation of your best-selling memoir, My Underground American Dream. Why did you want to adapt the story for a younger audience? Yeah. Um, So the reason, I remember being in middle school Mm -hmm. and not reading a single book that reflected my experiences, like where the protagonist of a book felt like it was someone like me. Right. And so as I was thinking about um, writing this book, I kept that in mind. And I wanted to make sure that young readers, young adults, feel like their stories are so important that there are books written about it. Mm. Right? And and I saw that today. I just came, I'm, I'm just here from, um, I was, was just in a, in a school in East LA where the majority of the students were Latinos and they were so excited. And they were like, I've never met an author before and I've never... I've never read a book that talks about my experiences. And I think that you know, for, for, for young adults who read this and they're gonna, I think they're gonna feel like they're, they're seen. Mm-hmm. Um, and then for students that maybe don't feel like this is exactly their experiences, I'm excited for them to learn about a different experience than theirs. And hopefully they'll be able to be more empathetic to people who are different from them. Yeah. Um, so I wanna hear the story about how you <laughs> came to Give a copy of this book to Steve Bannon mm. the other weekend. <laughs> tell, 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 oh my God. tell me what happened there. Um, so I was invited to speak at the Economist um, Open Future uh, Fest, and and so the Economist, unlike the New Yorker, did not take away their invitation of Steve Bannon. Right. right? Yeah. And so I thought really long and hard about, do I still go to this event? And when I realized that the immigration panel. Um, was going to have no actual immigrants on the panel and people from um, the Center for Immigration Studies, which is which has been called a hate group. I was like, no, I have to go and I have to make sure that my voice is part of the conversation. Mm. Um, I didn't know that we were actually going to be able to ask Steve Bannon questions, um, but I sat in the front row and I had this really visceral, physical reaction to him walking on stage like. I wanted to like throw up because yeah. here he was and he's so harmful and so dangerous. Um, but when they said we could ask him questions, I started thinking about what what am I going to ask him? And I thought about the question. Um, and what I asked him was about the lies that he tells to the American worker that immigrants are taking their jobs when at the same time there was a a 
a tax bill that passed when he was in the White House that is for corporations, not for the worker. Right. right? And and then I said and then I said to him because he had talked about how much he likes to read, blah blah blah. So I was like, oh, and since you like reading so much, here's a copy of someone like me, so you can actually learn about immigrants. And I handed him the book, and my heart was like <laughs> racing because I had not planned to do that. Like I just, yeah. it kind of just happened in the moment. Um, but yeah, I'm glad that. What did he know, say? He was like, "Oh, thank you. You'll have to sign it for me." And I was like, "Oh, I already, I already signed it. I came prepared." <laughs> and uh, how did he answer your question? Oh, so his question, the way that he answered the question, of course, he like, you know, he doesn't answer questions. Right. Like he's gonna try he's to deflect com- and completely just, full of bullshit. Right. And he's gonna <laughs> stick to his talking points. However, he did say, you know, yeah, this tax bill is not for the American worker. And I fought. Uh, and I fought That's Steve Minusha and I fought uh, Gary Cohen, but they won and I lost. And that, I think, proves proves um, the point. And I know you guys talk about it a lot on the pod. And I know I, um, I was listening to Monday's pod on the way here. And it just proves the point that Republicans cannot, they cannot run on an economic platform because they don't have any answers. So they're going to have to run on right. an anti-immigrant MS-13 campaign because they actually have nothing to show the American worker. Right. If they re- if they really believed in helping working class Americans, white, Latino, African American, whoever, um, they would have a different economic agenda because they have an economic agenda that is only for the rich. The only way to attract the votes of working class Americans, white working class Americans, is to make them afraid of right. immigrants or to make them afraid of African-Americans or to, you know, do what they've been doing for um, many years now. Right. Exactly. And it's like, you know, uh, I'm so glad I asked him that. And that like I, we have like a video of him saying that, you That's know, good. yeah, this tax bill is actually not for the American worker. And I'm like, you're right. It's not. <laughs> and therefore, you know, you guys are going to skip, skip, uh, keep like spewing your 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 lies. Yeah. Um, what's funny to me is like how the places that are most afraid of immigrants are the places that actually don't have right a large population of immigrants yeah um so that's always like puzzling to me the other fascinating thing i learned when i was um doing the immigration episode for the wilderness is um i think it was ali who told me you know what he typically thinks is there's 20 percent of the country who's against immigration all the time mm-hmm. there's 20 percent of the country who's completely pro-immigration all the time for, and then there's about 40 percent in the middle who can go back and forth what do you think the best strategy for persuasion is of those people in the middle? Because some people think it's with facts, it's with the economic argument, it's with the national security argument. Some people say it's more cultural. Um, you obviously wrote a book that is, you know, an incredibly compelling story to sort of like move people's emotions about your own story. But what what do you think about that? I did write a very compelling book, and I think. You know, listeners, you should get a copy. Go read it. Go read it. it Someone like me. (laughs) And if, you know, I think even though it's a young adult book, I really do think that like adults will like be able to pick it up and read it. But if you really want the adult saucier version, (laughs) then go get my (laughs) underground American dream. Buy both. Buy both. Why choose? Right. Um, But to answer your question, like actually if I, you know, if I had, if I had all the answers, Right. I would immigration reform would have passed right. and that would be you yeah. know, will the, the Nobel Prize. Um, but I think it's a combination of everything you just said. Mm-hmm. I think that we have to have a strategy that 
does speak to people's hearts, and that's by telling our stories mm-hmm. and sharing more stories like mine, um, and like the thousands of dreamer stories, and um, and to remember that there's also stories of like the worker who's in the field and who doesn't have a college education, but who has just as much um, of of who has earned just as much to be to be American, um, and we do have to keep pushing the economic argument. I think in this in this midterm elections, that's going to be. Um, are I think the biggest answer is to keep reminding people that the answer of if immigrants were not in America, you'd have a job and you'd have better health care and you'd have better education. Like we have to really push back against that message. Yeah. Um, and then I do think that it's also um, I I love what what um, Ali said about uh, bringing in the 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 religious community mm-hmm. to this. Right? Yeah. Because there are going to be a lot of people who um, I, I went on this show once that the the person the host is a reverend but he's like very conservative and like a big donald trump supporter yeah um and so he was like quoting me bible verses and i was like i got you like i've read the (laughs) bible too so like let me tell you what god says you know and like literally in the bible it says that it's our obligation to take care of the widow to take care of the orphan and to take care of the immigrant like it specifically calls those those three uh, groups of people that we're supposed to be taking care of, and so I think we have to we have to bring that message in also. So it's it's a combination of everything you said. Julissa, thank you for coming back on Pod Save America. The book is Someone Like Me: How One Undocumented Girl Fought for Her American Dream. Thank you for thank having you me so much. And check out the Crooked Conversations that Julissa is leading over the next couple of weeks. And like I said, buy both books. Yes, buy both <laughs> books and listen to Grace and me on those Crooked Conversations. Thanks, Julissa. Thanks. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we will uh, we'll talk to you next week. And don't forget to go to votesaveamerica.com and uh, sign up for a chance to uh, see us uh, live for a live show next week. Bye, everyone. you know and trust is now angie and we're so much more than just a list we still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly we can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish so remember angie's list is now angie and we're here to get your job done right get started at angie.com that's a-n-g-i or download the app today Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too.
And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25.